I have been blessed with a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We were uh, childhood best friends, and we uh, did pretty much everything together from dissecting animals together in biology class to being the best man in each other's weddings. I'm so grateful for him. We've been friends through thick and thin, and uh, we've also done some pretty dumb things together. But that's what these kinds of friends are, are for, right? One of those less than brilliant ideas was playing football in the freezing cold rain. It was Thanksgiving, so we're right on the verge of winter, but we couldn't not play, right? It was Thanksgiving. It was tradition. So we played, and I caught a cold, but I was going to be tough about it. I was, I was going to be a man. I didn't need to go see a doctor. I'd get over it right? Well, I didn't get over it. One day, about six weeks later, six weeks of coughing later, in January, I was sitting at my desk at work, sitting there at my desk, short of breath at my desk, my heart racing while I was sitting there at my desk. And so I didn't know what to do, so I thought it'd be a good idea to get up and go to the break room so I could collect myself. And on my way there, I, I almost passed out. And I called my wife. She came and got me. And we went to the doctor. And they did some tests. Diagnosis, pneumonia, bilateral pleural pneumonia. So there I was on a nebulizer, on bed rest with pneumonia. Brilliant, right? Tough guy, right? Well, that was a humbling experience. It gets better. We were moving across town. And so we needed to pack all of our things. And we were moving from the second floor apartment to a second floor apartment. So we had to carry all of our stuff down and up a flight of stairs. Because of my compromised health, I couldn't do any of that work. And so instead, I had to watch my friends move my stuff while I sat there with pneumonia. I didn't like that. That was hard to do. That was a humbling experience. I had to learn to receive the help of my friends. That wasn't just a good life lesson to learn, but there's also an important spiritual lesson to learn there. Because one of the most basic things about being a Christian is learning to receive from Christ. If you aren't able to receive from Christ and to be served by Christ, then you can't be a Christian. If you're not able to receive from Christ or be served by Christ, then you cannot be a Christian. That's hard for you to hear. You are not alone. Jesus had to teach his first followers that lesson. So let's learn that lesson together from John chapter 13. 
Let's turn to John chapter 13. If you're using the Bible, it's in the pew in front of you. That's page 756. 756. If you don't have a Bible or if you've lost yours, please go ahead and take that. We have more. John's gospel is all about learning what it means to be a follower of Jesus. John tells us in chapter 20, verse 31, that he wrote this book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ. That means the promised Savior. And that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing that you would have life in his name. So everything in this book is bent toward that purpose. To show you who Jesus is and to encourage you to trust him with your whole life. So to do this, John fills the first half of the book with these mighty signs, these mighty works of Jesus. Jesus, in the first half of the book, demonstrates power over this world by healing the lame and even raising the dead back to life. Jesus, in the first half of the book, speaks shockingly authoritative words that could explain how the whole Bible points to him. He taught the teachers of the Bible that he was the purpose and the fulfillment of the Bible. But he could also speak authoritatively in such a way as to change an individual's life. Through all of this, Jesus reveals his own identity. Jesus says in chapter 2 that he is the true temple. That he is greater than Abraham. And he even goes so far as to say that he is one with the Father and takes that unique divine identity, I am, onto himself. And that's just a summary of the first half of the book. Chapter 13 begins the second half of the book of John's Gospel. And now the story slows way down. And the remaining nine chapters cover just a few days of Jesus' life. Here, Jesus' glory is the main theme. Now, glory is often thought of as that kind of over-the-top beauty and wonder. And there's a sense in which that's, that's true about Jesus. But his glory also has surprises for us because in John 13, we begin to learn that Jesus' glory, his beauty, his wonder, is especially seen in his humble service, which is ultimately seen in his gruesome death on the cross. We don't often think of glory like that. But there is greater glory in Jesus' self-sacrifice than in a view from the top of a mountain or from a beach. So let's look at this glory together in John 13. Listen as I read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the heart 
of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter saith unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus saith to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, Ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know ye what I have done to you? Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we need against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while and I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, he cannot come. 
So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterward. Peter said unto him, Lord, why can I not follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. The main idea of this sermon is that if we do not receive Christ's love, we cannot be his follower. If we do not receive Christ's love, we cannot be his follower. We see this truth in the foot washing, which is more than the mere act, but is something of a dramatized parable. It has levels of meaning. And we'll attempt to unpack two of the most important lessons from the foot washing. The first lesson is this, that if we do not receive Jesus' love, we cannot be clean. If we do not receive Jesus' love, we cannot be clean. Few chapters in the Bible are as dramatic as the one before us, where we see the height and the depth of Jesus' great love for us. If this were a story from the Wild West, it would be high noon. But it's a story from the ancient Near East, and so we see that it's the Passover. The Passover was, of course, that celebration of how God delivered his people from Egypt, and specifically, how he spared them from the angel of death through the sacrifice of a lamb and putting that blood on their doorposts. By reminding us of the Passover, John raises our sense of expectation and he prepares us to understand Jesus' own sacrifice of himself. John even gives us Jesus' growing sense of expectation in verse 1. Jesus himself knows that his hour has come to depart from this world. And then this, this act of foot washing is dramatic in itself. And to feel this appropriately, we have to use our imagination to, to enter this scene. This is indeed the Last Supper, but for many reasons, da Vinci's painting won't help us here. For one, they're not seated at a table. Uh, they are rather on the floor, leaning in toward a low table or mat, and they're probably leaning in on their, their left arm, with their feet all pointed outwards towards the walls. And then what Jesus does next shocks them all. Did you notice in verses 4 and 5 how John slows down to give us details here? In verse 4, he says that Jesus gets up. He lays aside his garments. And he wraps a towel around his waist. 
And then in verse 5, he pours water into a bowl, all while the disciples are just watching him. And then he goes around to each of them, and he washes their feet, and then dries their feet with the towel. Jesus, he dresses here like the lowliest of servants. And he performs an act of service that only the lowest servant would do. Our horse population in Lancaster County is high enough that I probably don't need to tell you what the condition of their feet would have been like. Last year, one of my sons stomped in a puddle that wasn't a puddle, and he was wearing sandals. No joke, my wife cleaned his feet, and she thought of this text. And she was right, because the disciples' feet were filthy. Superiors did not do this for inferiors. Peers didn't even do this for one another. You know, none of, the, none of the disciples did this or offered to do this. Most of them are probably shocked into an awkward silence. You know, the kind when someone is acting in a socially unacceptable or embarrassing way? Well, almost all of them are silent, except for our friend Peter, who objects and says, Lord, what are you doing? And then, two verses later, he doubles down and says, You will never wash my feet. Of course, Peter and the disciples, they have the highest regard for Jesus. John the Baptist says at the beginning of this gospel in chapter 1 that Jesus is so great that not even John the Baptist, who Jesus called the greatest prophet, not even the John the Baptist could loose the strap on Jesus' sandal. But here's Jesus loosing the straps of his disciples' sandals and washing the filth off their feet. And then Jesus teaches the first lesson in verse 8. If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. True to form, Jesus' words are thick with meaning. And of course, Jesus isn't merely talking about washing people's feet as if Jesus' mission were to form a clean feet society. Jesus is talking about spiritual cleansing. And the need for spiritual cleansing is so clear in this text. Because these feet that Jesus so humbly washes are about to flee from him. And do we think that we are better than they? Notice how cold and calloused sin makes us. Judas, who had followed Jesus for some three years now, allows Jesus to wash his feet, all the while entertaining the satanic idea of betraying Jesus. Judas shares this meal with Jesus. 
and even allows Jesus to serve him food in verse 26. Jesus gives him food, he takes it, and he eats it. And then in verse 30, he all too willingly departs into the night to betray Jesus with his belly full of the food that Jesus gave him and his feet freshly cleaned by the one he's about to betray. Sin makes us cold and calloused and mean. We see in verse 29, the disciples, they don't exactly know what's going on with Judas. But if they did, they wouldn't have had much room to brag. Even assuming the best intentions, Peter once again, in verse 37, overestimates himself. Ironically saying that he is going to lay down his life for Jesus, and Jesus is about to lay down his life for him. Yet Jesus reveals in the next verse that Peter will actually deny Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. And the rest of the disciples probably would not have done much better if they had not already ran away when Jesus was arrested. Sin makes us proud. Sin makes us fearful. Sin even makes us hate the God who made us, who cares for us, who feeds us, who clothes us. Sin makes us dirty. Do you see your need for cleansing here? If you've been working outside in the dirt this spring, this is the time we all do that, you've probably washed your hands before moving on to the next thing, and you may have had to take time to scrub the dirt out from under your nails, and then an hour later you still found a dirt somewhere in the cracks of your fingers. Sin, disobeying God's law, leaves us filthy and deeply stained. But like Lady Macbeth, we can't get the spot out. We can't get the blood off our hands. God sees that stain. He is holy and pure and just. And he cannot endure that guilt to go unpunished. Pollution is a problem in the world, right? It mars the beauty of the world and it harms things, it harms life. Sin is toxic spiritual pollution. Sin disrespects God. It mars the beautiful world that God made, and it is deadly to our spiritual life. And so this is our greatest problem. This is our greatest need. We need to rid ourselves of the stain of sin. But Jesus says, we can't do it. Maybe that's a blow to your pride. And you can't bear to allow Jesus to serve you and for Jesus to meet your greatest need. Friend, don't overestimate yourself. Don't be like me when I got a cold. Don't think that you can be tough and take care of yourself. So many people think that they can scrub out the stain of sin themselves by reforming their living and trying to be a generally good person, or at least being better than that person. 
it's not enough. Is that you? Stop your striving. Stop your scrubbing at the the stain that you can't remove. Jesus alone must wash us. Jesus alone must clean us. The preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Morality may keep you out of jail, but it takes the blood of Jesus to keep you out of hell. Jesus' act of humble service here points to his ultimate act of humble service where he shed his blood to wash away our sins. This washing, by the way, from sin is the spiritual reality that is so beautifully portrayed in baptism, which we will witness shortly. The baptism itself is not washing away sins, but it shows the spiritual reality of how Jesus' blood has washed away our sins. If you don't receive this washing by Jesus' blood, then Jesus says you have no part of him. You are not one of his people. You are not a Christian. And you are still stained by your sin. But you can be made clean today. We can say With that hymn, dark the stain I cannot hide. Stain of sin, my guilt to prove. Guilt my own and foolish pride. Pride, the reason for my sin. Wash me in the Savior's blood. Make me pure without, within. Cleanse my heart and set me free. Free from guilt and free from sin. Will you turn away from your sin that pollutes and turn to Christ who can make you clean through his blood? Will you do that today? You can. Just talk to God. Confess your sin to him. Confess that your sin has made you dirty before him and ask him to wash you clean through the blood of Christ alone. What a gift. You can be clean from guilt and sin. What great love that Jesus serves us in this way. And when you receive from Jesus in this way, you can have confident assurance that all your sins are forgiven. This is how I understand Jesus' response to Peter there in verse 10. When Peter asks, he says, well, well then wash my head and my hands. But Jesus says that Peter has indeed been washed spiritually. Jesus says, ye are clean. Now, being clean doesn't mean that we won't sin. We will sin. But when we sin, that doesn't mean that we need to be washed all over again or saved all over again. No, Jesus' blood has a continual cleansing and renewing effect. There was a time when I wondered if I needed to ask Jesus to save me again and again each time that I sin. But that's not how this cleansing works. We are cleaned once, and that cleaning has enduring effects. We don't have to live with guilt and shame and condemnation for our sins, because they are all washed away. But that doesn't mean that we can just play in the dirt with our sins. 
No, this cleansing transforms us and leads us to the second lesson from the foot washing. The second lesson is that when we have received Jesus' love, we love others in the same way. When we receive Jesus' love, we love others in the same way. Jesus begins this lesson in verse 12 when he sits back down. Notice that Jesus doesn't explain his humble service by flattening out the dynamics of their relationship. He doesn't say, well, you know, we're really all the same. I'm just like you. Jesus doesn't say that. He says in verse 13, no, they're right to call him master and Lord because that's who he is. And that that claim to supremacy can be jarring to our modern sensibility, but I think it should actually draw us further into the wonder of his great love. What Lord or leader loves like this? Prior to coming here, I worked for two rather large companies, and you don't just get access to the owners of those companies. And it's hard if you wanted to change something. It's, it's hard just to get a meeting with one of the movers or shakers in the company, let alone the owner. No, you, you work for them, and you work on their terms. But our master and Lord has served us in great humility. And Jesus then leverages his argument here in verse 14 to argue from the greater to the lesser. He says, if our master has served us in humility, then we should definitely serve each other in humility. Now, some see in these verses an ordinance for the church that we should practice foot washing, just like baptism or the Lord's Supper. But we don't hear of any Christians in the early church practicing foot washing. We don't see it in the New Testament. We don't see it in the first few hundred years of early Christian writings. The New Testament does, however, repeat the commands for baptism and the Lord's Supper. So in other words, the early Christians didn't understand Jesus to be instituting an ordinance here, but that doesn't make this meaningless. They definitely did understand Jesus to be setting an example of humble service. Jesus is saying that we should serve one another just like he served us. And then if you look at verses 34 and 35, Jesus says something similar there. He says that we're to love one another as he has loved us, we're to love one another. Now the command to love is certainly not new. I hope you don't think of the Old Testament as a a mean, grumpy part of the Bible and the New Testament as a kind, loving part of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18 says, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So this is not a new command that's unique to Jesus. It's consistent with the whole Bible. But the freshness of the command is the example of Jesus. Jesus has set a new example for our love in the foot washing, but especially in the cross. Through Jesus, we understand the nature of love better. In our own culture, expressions of love can be particularly selfish. A young man might tell a a young girl that he loves her, meaning, you make me feel good. 
But when that good feeling goes away, then he might confess, I don't love you anymore. That's a rather selfish take on love. Love is not selfishly seeking our own benefit, but rather love seeks the good of another. Jesus shows that by his self-giving, self-sacrificing love. Brothers and sisters, our love is shown in selfless acts of love to specific people. Love is shown when one of our deacons who is working overtime sacrifices the few free hours that he has to take care of a widow in need. Love is shown when one busy mom babysits for another busy mom. Love is shown when someone else's celebration becomes an occasion for your own joy. And when someone else's sorrow becomes a shared grief. I still remember the fellowship meal when I candidated here and how Pastor John waited on my family and on our table. And he wasn't just doing that because I might be the next pastor. I've seen him do that multiple times since then. You see, we aren't following Jesus by having friendly feelings towards Christians in general. Jesus' love was sacrificially serving his people, washing their feet, giving his life for them. Our love should also be identifiable and public. Look again at verse 35. How will people know who... Jesus' people are by seeing the way that they love one another. The love of the church ought to be visible and identifiable to the watching world. And our love is in fact a public witness. Did you hear that? Our love for one another is a public witness. The way we live together is essential to God's plan to evangelize the watching world. So how are you obeying this command for specific, sacrificial, identifiable love for your Christian brothers and sisters? I would encourage you to ask that question to yourself, to think about that. Maybe talk about it over lunch or in your connection groups. Friend, let me make a suggestion. I know of no better way of living out this kind of specific public love than committing yourself to a local church through membership. That might sound like an odd way to apply this to you. But by joining a local church, you identify yourself with a specific, identifiable community. And by joining a local church, you're not just becoming part of a club, you're committing to love one another the way Jesus describes here. If you want to know what church membership means here at Harvest, just take that Red Majesty hymnal in front of you and open up to the front flap and read through our church covenant. It's so good, I'm okay if you tune out from the sermon for a couple minutes and read it. I'm about to wrap up anyway. Receiving help from others isn't, isn't just a good lesson in humility. 
I hope you see that receiving help from others also teaches us something about the gospel, about our relationship with God. I once, on a different occasion than the pneumonia, spent a week in the hospital, and shortly after I arrived, my mom and my sister and my friend, my best friend, came to see me. They traveled seven hours to get there so they could be with me in my distress. Receiving love like that has taught me something about my relationship with God and how he cares for me. I hope you have received love like that. I hope you can receive love like that. Regardless of how others have loved you or failed to love you, Jesus loves like that. Jesus loves and Jesus saves and Jesus serves.